everyone. This is another podcast with Christian Hunters of America. This is Chet Gray. We are going to have a special guest in our live studio down here in Southern Arizona. We have Steve Hansen. He is a guide and outfitter in Iowa on uh, Midwest Whitetails. He has come out here as a friend of CHA, and uh, he is a mentor for our camp just because he's been coming to Arizona and is a successful hunter. We're going to have uh, Mike Ornoski, as we do with my co-host. We have our president of CHA, Dave Myrick, that's going to be in studio. And uh, let's get to this podcast right away. We're down here in southern Arizona for our Christian Hunters of America mentored archery, javelina, and deer camp. Welcome to another episode of the Christian Hunters of America podcast. This is Chet. We have... Mike Ornoski, we have Dave Myrick, and we have Steve Hansen. We are in a uh, little trailer in southern Arizona. It's the only somewhat soundproof room, so we uh, hope everybody enjoys this episode. We are at the 2022 Christian Hunters of America Mentored um, Javelina Archery and Archery uh, Deer Camp, all the -the over-the-counter mule deer and coos deer hunts down here in southern Arizona. And uh, anyone that got in the 36s is always welcome in our camp uh, for Javelina. How are you, Mike? You're doing good. We're hot and sweaty for 75 degrees in January. It is a hot day in southern Arizona. (laughs) The rut doesn't feel like it's uh, fully kicked in because we're seeing a little bit of chasing, but uh, this hot weather doesn't seem like the... It's kicked in in full, but we got Dave Myrick, our president of CHA, in in, in studio or in uh, the single wide down here in southern Arizona, our quasi-studio. How are you, Dave? I'm doing good, guys. Glad to glad to be here down in the single wide, uh, getting it done. <laughs> and we have our good friend Steve Hansen from Iowa that is down here uh, hunting as well as helping mentor some of our newer uh, members and new people to hunting and new people to uh, CHA. How are you, Steve? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Steve has known Dave. Uh, They've been friends for quite some time. So um, Dave knows all of his backstory. Dave knows how long he's been coming out here. They've helped each other out. Dave's gone out to I-100. Dave, um, do you want to touch on Steve's background and how long he's been coming out here and over the years, helping uh, get used to Arizona and all the hunting out here. Sure, I'll I'll touch on a little bit, but then I'll give it over to Steve, and he and he can tell you in more detail. But Steve and I have known each other for a long time. It's probably been twenty five years or more. Um, he's been coming out here hunting and stuff. Been out here elk hunting. He's been out here uh, coos deer hunting stuff. And this year, he decided to come out and help us with a mentored archery deer and javelina hunt. So uh, I was glad to have him in camp. Got to take out some new guys yesterday and got them on some javelina and made some uh, stalks on some deer. So it was great to have Steve here, but I'll hand it over to Steve and let him tell you about the first time he came out and some of the experiences he's uh, experienced out here in Arizona. Yeah, it's really a good time to get out here. I left and we got 10 inches of snow the day I left. So it's a huge, huge luck for me to be able to come here and do this. But uh, I think I've been doing this for probably... 23 or 24 years with David and and some other friends and we've gone our first hunt was down in this exact same country and they brought me down here we you know set up a camp it was you know something I had no experience with and at that time in my life I was spending a lot of time in Alaska guiding so I thought I knew a lot about hunting well glassing down here and glassing in Alaska is two totally different experiences and that was the first lesson that I had to learn about all this 
And then another lesson that Dave decided to let me learn on my own was we set camp up in a wash and then he left me and went back to Phoenix for the week. So luckily it didn't rain that week or I may not be here, but that's how, uh, that's how my career or my uh, experiences in down here in Arizona have begun. One quick note on that. Uh, Steve was used to glassing for brown bears. And uh, when we first sat down to start glassing for coos deer and javelina, he was glassing right over the, the top of them the first day and probably getting a little frustrated, you know, that we were finding these javelina deer. But uh, the pretty big difference between a uh, brown bear and a javelina. But he got the hang of it real quick. And after we came back, after being gone for a few days, he was the only one that could find the javelina after that. Yeah, that was that was a great trip that started our whole uh, kind of friendship and whole adventures out here. And since then, I've been on, oh, probably 15 elk hunts, five of which have been my own. The other ones, I just were helping other people that, that drew tags, Dave a lot of times and some other friends. And then I did get to help David as well on his uh, bighorn sheep tag this year, and that was quite an experience. And then was really glad to, you know, get the invite to come back down here with this and just help some people that I didn't know. Yeah, for sure. And, and coming from Iowa, you know, on the private property and, and fields and not this big open public land stuff. So what would, for listeners that maybe live in the Midwest or the East Coast that are used to whitetail hunting similar to what you do, what do you think the biggest differences of a mindset that these individuals would have to have when coming to Arizona, which include maybe some of the travel that you do, um, including the setup and, and once you get here, that whole mindset changes from private property. Maybe you have all these different agricultural fields and things like that and stands and tree stands and ground blinds and, and routes where here it's, it's wide open country. Yeah. I would say one of the biggest differences that I would point out to people right off the bat is that here the hunt basically occurs in two stages. The first part of the hunt is finding something to hunt. So you have to learn to glass. You have to be able to cover huge amounts of country back home in the Midwest you know, you have your spot. It's either your farm or someone's farm that grants you permission or you lease it. That's the only place you're going. The deer are either there or they're not. Here, you know, we get up in the morning in this camp and everybody kind of makes a plan and somebody goes with somebody else. And I bet we were 50 miles apart this morning and everybody was finding, you know, game in different spots. But that's the first skill set that you have to have is the ability to find game. Once you found the game, then you have to learn how to hunt them. And Arizona has some unique um, laws that took me a little bit to figure out. You know, you're allowed to use radios with the spotting and stalking. That's a huge, you know, advantage um, if you have somebody else that, you know, can help you on a stalk like that. And then the other thing that we're not used to in the Midwest is, is the importance of water out here. It is night and day. And why typically I don't hunt water or haven't done a lot of it, it is a big part of the Arizona experience and a huge part of the culture of, of the hunting here. And with that, um, we're touching on just like you said, you're going to a farm, you're sitting in a tree stand. You can have, without getting into the, the, the subject of trail cams, that's for another time out here because we've had some controversy surrounding that. But you can have that in a lot of the Midwestern states. You have somewhat of a, a pattern if you have a, a quarter section or a section of land or even 40 acres, um, you know – somewhat even going out there and scouting, you're, you're trying to find which bucks to target and uh, you start to know your land really, really, really well where, yeah, you can know the roads out here. You can know the terrain, you know, the topography, you know how to glass over years, but they're not going to be always in the same spot. They're always going to be moving around and you're not sitting in a tree stand, especially in Southern Arizona where a Palo Verde and the mesquites are the tallest. We do have ground blinds like everybody's mentioned, and you can be sitting on water, especially 
uh, during a drought and we have a lot of yellow grass that everybody's having to really um, work hard to try to be quiet, even with different types of uh, equipment that softens while you're walking, whether you're in your socks, whether you're wearing some some booties over your uh, boots to try to make them quiet. This yellow grass, when it dies or the rocks and the all the different uh, cactus that make lots of noise, it, it's a challenge on those stalks, correct? It definitely is. Yep. You know, t- the last two days we've made stalks to, to no avail. And, you know, I think part of that's due to the, you know, dry, crunchy conditions for, without a doubt. And we've had some people that have had lots of does coming in uh, this year. Like we said, we, I don't think anyone has really seen a ton of rutting action. We have seen some bucks, coos and mule deer chasing some does, but it's not hardcore whether that's uh, none of us are biologists, we don't know that uh, it's because weather weather generated, but just from past knowing that when it cools off, that's why December and January are the hot times, and that's why it's um, over kind of the archery because it, it is significantly harder. We're not having rut hunts with rifles, per se, um, on a huge scale. But, um, Dave, if you want to talk about however many times you've brought different guys out here and how different it is when you're instructing them and mentoring them and teaching them coming out here from some of these states where it's quiet. You're sitting in that tree stand. You can hear those deer coming. Uh, you, you're hearing them walking on the, the oak leaves and you're being quiet. Now it's the deer are real quiet and we're having to put, once you find them, as Steve said, you're having to put that stalk from half a mile away and all the coos deer here are, are switched on because everything wants to eat them. The mule deer will let you get closer but they're still not going to let you get closer than 100 yards or so before they start uh, prancing away yeah kind of a comment on that would be one of the differences from bringing people like steve out here for his first uh hunt that he came out for a javelina combination javelina deer hunt he is a professional hunter and at least he has a lot of the concepts um, you know, as far as being quiet and it was able to learn how to glass, you know, for these smaller animals very quick, um, having that background really, I think makes a big difference, not just for him, but other friends, there's times that he will actually bring out some of uh, his clients that, you know, that go through his guiding whitetail guiding business. And, uh, those guys will have this, a similar mindset. They already know enough about hunting to be able to, you know, catch on pretty quick. But when you come into things like this camp that what we're doing right now, the whole purpose of that is to take brand new people that really know very little about it, um, and teach them. And, and we've got to the point in camp that we realize that we have to teach them everything. Some of the very, very simple mistakes that are made, you know, are, just because they were never told and didn't know any different. And you kind of forget about the things that you know. So having Steve and some of uh, my other buddies from out of state um, that came into hunt, usually the learning curve was, was pretty, um, you know, pretty sharp for getting these guys on the program and stuff. And with their background, they had caught on to just about everything we were doing really quick. So to expand on that, so two-part question for both Dave and Steve. So, Steve, as a new hunter to the Midwest, what are some of the glassing techniques that you have picked on? Then, Dave, I'll let you expand on when you're looking for javelina and coosier down here. I'll let you expand on exactly what you're looking for and how you're glassing so that our listeners have an understanding. So when they come down here, these are some tools that they can use when looking for you know, our elusive javelinas and coos deer. Yeah, one thing that, you know, the average person from the Midwest or the East Coast, for that matter, is going to find very different is your 10 power binoculars are your bare minimum to be out here. Those should be the ones that you wear around your neck. They're the ones you, you know, kind of do your quick scans and glassing with. But someone in the group, 
it really helps to have someone have at least a pair of 12s or 15 powers and then have the ability to mount them on a, on a tripod. It's just, it's a much more organized approach to glassing. You can effectively cover the country that much better. And then one more step to that is having a spotting scope that you can interchange back and forth if you're on a deer hunt like this and you really want to see if it's a deer, you know, worthy of pursuing or, you know, just studying the country at, at better detail. And this Arizona is very, very glassable country for the most part. There's a lot of semi-open country and the air is very clear, very low humidity here. So you can glass pretty effectively until it gets warm and the, and the air starts to mirage. But prior to that, it's very crisp. Like you can really see what good binoculars can perform out here. Touching on that as well, I think uh, we kind of mentioned it before, but it's just when when the guys come out, the people that haven't glassed very much, one of the number one things that they need to learn is patience, and it, it's hard for just about anybody to you know to sit still for a long period of time. But they're used to not hardly ever even using their optics, so you know for them to sit on a, a hill and glass for three hours, they're just you know flat out going crazy, going, "What are we doing here? We're wasting our time." But in reality, most of my friends like Steve that it came out, they they realize quickly, like after the, the first day, how valuable it was to sit at one place, to get to like an elevated hill, to be comfortable. And also, of course, being professional hunters, they had uh, awesome optics already. But that's another aspect of it. You know, as far as optics go, personally, I would rather have uh, better optics than actually the, the weapon that I'm hunting with. Because if you can't find the game most of the time, you cannot harvest that animal. So having good optics is huge hugely important and then knowing how to use them as well if you've you know if you've even got the best optics money can buy and you don't know how to use them um, then then you're missing out but the one of the main things is to slow down take your time get to good places to glass and not move around too much just a real quick story about a, a guy that came out that uh we sat down to do some glass and it was actually uh, one of Steve's friends. I think it was like maybe the second or third year Steve had come out and he brought one of his friends. We all sat down and started glassing. Well, after about an hour, this guy got bored and he walked around this little ridge and uh, he disappeared for a little bit and we didn't, you know, think too much of it. Well, he came back and goes, Oh, I just saw, saw a little deer and I just uh, went over there and used my grunt call and I called him, called him right up to me. It was really cool. And we're like, well, did you shoot him? He's like, well, no, he's just a really small deer, you know. And we're like, well, dang, if it was a coos deer, you, you know, you, you should have shot him. And long story short, we went back over around that ridge after about another hour. And he goes, oh, there's that buck. It's down there. It was over a 100-inch coos deer that he had literally called right to him and basically shushed him off of there because he thought it was a little buck. He's used to looking to these eastern whitetail, you know, and we're like, well, unfortunately, that deer is probably equivalent to about a 200-inch whitetail. That's a Boone and Crockett deer. So you, you kind of have to learn some of that stuff the hard way as well coming from other states. Yep, great point. And uh, so let's expand on the glassing. So we all left about 6.30 this morning, so it's still dark. We're heading, you know, some like today we drove an hour, 15 minutes to get to where we were going. I think you guys probably went wherever your spot was from campus within an hour. So what is your techniques when you first pull up, when the sun's just starting to turn gray and starting to become light? What's your gridding p pattern that listeners, when they come out and glass and are, are you, some may just want to just get up there first light and start looking at us, may want to start at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock. So is there a different sequence when you're starting early in the morning? Are you looking at different parts of the mountain? Are you looking at the top of the mountain, the bottom of it? Are you looking at the drainages? Are you following the sun as it's, it's lighting up the mountainside? Are you just strictly looking at the north side of the mountain or the south side or the eastern side? So 
I guess my question would be is, what does that gridding pattern look for to help make you a little more successful from professional hunters, what you guys have learned down here in Southern Arizona? The way that I would start out in the morning like a morning like today is the first thing I do, you know, typically it's cool this time of year. And, you know, so all the game, they're not going to be afraid of the sun like they would on an August hunt or something. So I'll use my tens and just scan all the open, easy stuff first. Because, you know, you're catching them, they've been out all night, so they're still in the open a little bit. So I try to cover as much country quickly with the 10 powers. And then once I've accomplished that, then I, you know, try to decide if it's an area that's better to do by elevation. And I start at the bottom, and I'll just work from right to left, and then, the you know, pan one way on the tripod. Once I've covered the whole panoramic area that I can see, then I'll move up to the next elevation, and I'll pan back. And then I'll do that again and just kind of keep covering it like that. And then as the day wears on and you can tell that the animals are looking to get to some shade, then I'll start to concentrate on those areas that are shaded, you know, looking under the bushes, looking into the sun, which is something a lot of people don't like to do. But it's very important because if you've got the sun at your back, you know, whatever you're looking towards is probably out in the bright sun. So you almost need at times to, you know, have a sunshade and look into the sun, which is is a lot tougher. That's a great point. So I'm looking at both you and Dave, and you guys are both sunburnt. You guys are red and crisp, and you see you guys are burning. And most people think they'd be going to the beach in order to get sunburned. And I think that's a testament that you're actually got that sun in your face, and you're actually glassing into the sun, into those shady areas. Just another quick note on that, what Steve was uh, talking about. One of the things, and it depends on what we're hunting. Today we are hunting strictly javelinas, and that's a little bit different. It's not as important to be there first thing. In fact, with javelina, um, sometimes if it's real cold in the morning, like a lot of times it is in January, you know, the, you won't even see the javelina getting up until the sun is out. You could literally glass right over a whole herd that's been bedded for, you know, even up to an hour, and they start coming out. So this morning was a little bit different, but if we were out actually – pursuing coos deer which we did see a bunch of those today we would have been out very early in the morning when before it was light enough to see and one of the things that i like to do not only is to cover all the real easy spots with your 10 power binoculars but look at the skylines if you're at a place that actually has mountains and they have skylines one of the things about a skyline is that you have a deer that within just a couple of steps can be completely and totally out of your view so a lot of times right as it's getting light we will view the whole entire skyline around where we're at just to make sure that there's not a buck or something skyline that we want to see that we're possibly going to miss uh, if we don't and then like steve said hit hit all the open stuff first and then sit down and, and start running your grid with the tripod i cannot express how important a tripod is and a lot of guys that one of the things that i like to do with a tripod most of them are set up you know to pan up and down and left and right the nice thing about panning left and right is that you can literally make it so that your binos will move on your tripod left to right and you can move it with your eyes. You can stick your hands in your pocket if it's cold, keep your hands warm, but it's also a very smooth action actually moving those optics with your actual, your eyes, you know, your head and leaning into it. And it's, and it's very precise as well, because if you do one grid to the left and then you also, you just go up another notch and you could go all the way back to the right again, you're going to keep that exact same uh, height the whole way because your tripod, whether it's level or not, it's going to follow the exact same path. And that's not always the same doing it vertically, but it, you know, sometimes vertically is works too. This seems kind of, uh, minor, but it is important for everybody that is learning from this and the little tidbits. I don't know. I know Steve is a very experienced hunter. This is not for him, but we have a lot of new hunters in camp. And if you are from the Midwest, 
you're parking or you're you're walking from your farm. You're not, and if a lot of them are by themselves, you got your own blind, you got your own tree stand, and you guys can come with a game plan and you walk away from there. And you're other than your footsteps, you're not really being loud. But if someone is out here and you're glassing and someone gets out you know, to the spot first and everybody else starts showing up. It's uh, very important and it seems, it seems common sense, but it, everybody's trying to be quiet. The, you know, the talking, the getting your tripods out, everybody's trying to be quiet, but it's just with this big open country, like you said, the, there's, you know, low humidity, the, the sound carries for a really long time. We got buddies that are giving me a, a hard time or me giving them a hard time. And you're, you know, trying to be quiet, extending the legs of your, your tripod or trying to uh, close a door quietly and you accidentally slam it or whatnot, but th- all those noises carry. And if someone's sitting down first, <clears throat> excuse me, and has their tripod up first, whoever's up there, you can see those deer perk up, not necessarily the javelina, but you can see all those deer, or we've all done it at different times, especially the mule deer, especially the coos deer, those ears perk up and you see the deer, the door closer, you hear it behind you, you hear the guys, you know, your buddy's talking and stuff, and you're trying to wave to them like, hey, I already got deer, I already got pigs. They hear you guys because your voices are are traveling so far. What do you think about that, Steve? Coming from Midwest, you're you're walking to your stand, and all you got to worry about is yourself. And you're coming out here, and everybody's glassing, and especially at a a camp where we have newer hunters or youth or whatnot. And we're just we've all made that those little mistakes, but we're just all learning and teaching. Yeah, that's a great point. I would you know one other part of Arizona that's definitely different for me is that you know 90% of the time or 99% of the time we're on on land that's open to the public so your point about people's voices we occasionally sit on lookout knobs or glassing hills where there might be other people and it's you know we'll sit there quietly they start having a conversation and if it's deer or elk or whatever it is where you know you can see the reaction on game that might be four to 800 yards away, but they can hear it. So that, yeah, that really is a good point about being quiet. And it kind of sets the tone for the day that you are hunting from the minute you leave the truck. Absolutely. A hundred percent. It's just little things like that. Like we said, we're down here at our uh, 2022 mentored camp. We have uh, newer hunters. We have some youth. We have some people that aren't hunting that just want to come out and experience it. And these are just little tidbits that I've learned that uh, Dave and Mike over years as mentors have, have taught me um, quite a few years ago or from other other friends. It's just those little things that, that seem so common and so normal now, but they're just the little stuff uh, like the tripod, like having something bigger than tens and just things that are going to help you out here in this open terrain. Yep. So my last question for Steve is, I think sometimes we get a bad rap in the industry of hunting about guides and outfitters and there's a perception. So here we have a professional hunter that's been, I'm assuming, 30 plus years, professional hunter, you know, from all aspects of different types of hunting. You just flew basically across the country, flew to an airport, drove down probably three hours to southern Arizona where we have a major border issues, as a lot of people know. If you watch the news, we, we do have some of that, and we've experienced some of that down here. In the name, to come down here and mentor, to give back, and to make a difference in life of somebody else that is wanting to come and learn and hunt. So so as, as an outfitter and as, as an individual that loves to give back and, and truly loves conservation and wildlife, even though the perception may be that it's all about me, myself, and I, 
there's a huge financial investment that you did to come out here this weekend. There's your time, your investment, everything else. And I know you spent most of the day yesterday and I talked to one of the new hunters that you had yesterday and they're like, well, we didn't expect to be out all day. We missed lunch. If I'd have known that, I would have packed some lunch and you're out there working them almost dark to dark, trying to get them on their first critter and teach them. To me, that's pretty impressive. So you want to kind of talk about that perspective, why it's important to give back and to make a difference. And here you have all this expertise and you're willing to basically showcase and and teach somebody something in one day or two days that might, may have ta- taken you 10 years to learn those same exact attributes. Yeah, it was, it was good. And, you know, that the fellow that I took yesterday, some of the best lessons you learn, you sort of learn the hard way. Although, you know, he, he took off on the stock without his pack, without his binoculars. And, of course, I shared my water with him and what a little bit of snacks we had. We ended up camped out for about three or four hours waiting on some javelina to reappear. Um, and... You know, one of the things that I told him, I said, when we find these things again, we're going to take our boots off and we're going to walk in our socks. And he was not thrilled about that. And then I gave him a small piece of flagging tape and I, and he he's kind of looked at it and I said, well, that's when you leave your boots, you put this in one of the cactus above it because it really is a bummer to have to, you know, shoot something and then come back and spend hours trying to find your boots. So, and I speak from experience on that. I did that on my first hunt here. So, um, no, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to come down here and, and go, you know, go along like that. And I would really like to see him get his first animal with a bow yesterday, but he's out hunting now. So hopefully he gets it done. I'd like to just touch on that too. One of the things, that, and, and not just, just Steve, even though Steve's very good about this, it's giving back guys. We, you know, we're all sitting here and we're doing a mentored hunt for these people and we've got families in camp. We've got kids here. We've got, we're making memories and stuff, but not just for that, for the adults, you know, the, the wives and the husbands that we're teaching to hunt and stuff. It's about giving back, you know, and Steve donates hunts for his whitetail business and stuff. But us at Christian Hunters of America, that's what we're all about. We're a ministry and we are about doing things for the public. We do a lot of community service stuff. We pick up stuff, trash in the desert and the forest and stuff, but that's what it's about is, is giving back. So if you have the opportunity, you know, do it. And if you can come to a camp and be a mentor and stuff, do it. It is so worthwhile. And I don't, you know, not everybody's the same, but I know that we get a lot out of helping other people, getting people involved with the sport, like it or not, hunting is a dying sport. And if we don't continue to enter new people into that sport and give back by teaching the people to do it they're they're not going to recruit more hunters it is literally going to die and we need as many people involved with hunting as we can to preserve the sport well that was uh, well said and uh, we just want to thank all our listeners for listening today this is our first time doing an on-site podcast so as you know we just started the podcast about a year ago roughly we're entering 2022 and we started in 2021 so been exciting watching the growth we just launched uh you know we're in the 20s now which is just amazing i think we're approaching 4,000 downloads somewhere in there 3,500 to 4,000 which to me is just unbelievable i, I was when we first started this I was like man if we get a thousand our first year man that we're going to go and celebrate and have a steak dinner and have a good time but it's just truly amazing but it's up because of individuals like yourselves that listen to the podcast and we and as you know we try to get different speakers and different topics and and if there's topics out there that you want or interest, you know, make sure you shoot us an email, info at christianhuntersofamerica.org. And we'd love to, or maybe you want to come on and be on a podcast. Maybe you're a professional hunter, or you hunt somewhere else, or you have some insight. You know, this is about uh, bringing new opportunities and for businesses, you know, for individuals, and basically create an educational and also have some fun on it because there is a, a whole dynamic of wealth of information that's out there through the hunting community, and, and, it's, and the hunting community at large is a giving community. So we do appreciate that. So. Okay, as we always do in Christian America, we're going to end us in prayer. Lord God in heaven, we just uh, we love you, Lord, and we just uh, we thank you, Lord, that we can come down to 
your beautiful creation down here in southern Arizona to um, give back, Lord, and, you know, to have wives down here and kids and, and husbands and friends and new members. And then also we have a business owner that owns this wonderful property that we're on. We just uh, thank you, Lord, that you build these relationships, Lord, through the fellowship. Even though, Lord, we may not harvest, but we are learning so much stuff, Lord, in the name of fellowship and through the ministry and, and making a difference and blessing others. I just ask that you would Continue to bless all those CHA members that are here, Lord. We ask that you bless their travels, Lord. We ask that you bless the families and those listeners that are listening today. And, Lord, we just give you all praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.